Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region... And shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the opening chapter of Matthew chapter 4, we saw Jesus and the devil in verses 1 through 11. Now we see Jesus with the desperate. And sometimes we number ourselves among those who are desperate. His ministry will include hope for those who are in darkness in verses 12 through 17 and those later disabled in verses 23 through 25. John the Baptist's ministry is drawing to a close. And the time has come for Jesus to begin his ministry in full force and great purpose. And the same is true of every believer. After our conversion to Christ, God may have us experience a time of testing, a time of preparation, a time of maturation, and then send us out into this world with a very specific purpose. And it really is okay for you to ask that question. What is my ministry purpose? The theologians in the olden days in the Westminster Confession would write out, this is the purpose of humanity, to glorify God. You exist to glorify God. You exist to have a right relationship with him. You exist to walk in fellowship and friendship with him. And most of you know that, but you might ask the question, well, what does that have to do with the very real life that I live? It was Dostoevsky in his famous book, The Brothers Karamazov, who said, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. And perhaps your life can be divided into those great divisions Life and looking for a reason to live. We used to sing a song, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life. To know and follow hard after you. And for Jesus, for Jesus, the closing of John's ministry is going to signal the beginning of his own. Jesus will make Capernaum his ministry headquarters. The decision is deliberate and designed to fulfill scripture according to Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 2. And then again later in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 6 and 7. There's also a great mission to go to the needy lands. And to go to needy people. To take people who are trapped in darkness and give them a great light. To take people who are dead and bring them back to life. And with the mission comes a message. And it's a message of hope and change. Not in the political sense. Repentance. Turning from sin. It's a message of repentance, but also reason. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is closer. It's closer. It's closer than it's ever been before. And so what is your ministry purpose? Have you sought the Lord to discover God's great purpose for your life? Or are you simply walking in the tasks and obligations that expect? 
that preoccupied your time before you came to a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus knows, Jesus knows his great purpose and now he's ready to go out and fulfill the mission and preach the message that God has given him to preach and the purpose has to include hope for those who are in darkness. A bright light has come. When Malcolm Muggeridge, the the famous journalist who was a contemporary with C.S. Lewis, when he was asked, what do you most want to do with the rest of your life? He replied in the way that the English often do, I should like my light to shine, even if only fitfully, like a match in a dark, cavernous night, and then flickering out it was his way of saying while I'm here I want to make it abundantly clear that people see what God is doing in my life and so look again in verse 12 now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison he departed to the Galilee for those of you who are unfamiliar with Matthew's gospel Up until this point, it has for the most part been written in chronological order. But between the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, between verse 11 and verse 12, there's a gap of a year and a half. A year and a half has gone by. And for those of you who want to know, hey, I want to know what happened during that year and a half, you would read... Luke's gospel, chapters 1 through 4, and John's gospel, chapter 1 and 2. During that year and a half time, Jesus has basically made his headquarter in Nazareth. This is the time when he has already gone to the Galilee and he's picked some of his disciples. He's called them to himself. The wedding feast of Cana has already taken place. And you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why isn't all of this included in one fell swoop? Well, guess what? That's why you have the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John. But Jesus is going to make his way from Nazareth to the Galilee. Jesus' stay in Nazareth will end violently when he's rejected by the people of Nazareth who try to murder him. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it's found in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, where he goes to the village of Nazareth and he opens the scroll where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, And for those of you who, again, are unfamiliar, they're going, well, wait a minute. Uh, You're from around here. You were, you were, you're from here. We, We know your mom. We know your dad. We know your brothers and your sisters. And when Jesus started talking about ministering to the Gentiles, they tried to kill him. And you might think it's a waste of time to try to minister to people who dislike you or who hate you or who are trying to kill you. But Jesus knows what that's like. And again, Jesus will make his way from Nazareth to Capernaum. And one of the things that I want to point out to you is that Jesus will begin his public ministry when John the Baptist draws to a close. Jesus has no interest in distracting from John's message or even competing for the attention or the affection of the crowds. And when Jesus hears of John's arrest, he will move to the north, to the Galilee. And by the way, John was thrown into Herod's prison at the palace of It's called Machairus, which was on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. If you look at the map and you see the western shore where it says Judean Desert, and you'll see a little dot that says Qumran, if you go to the eastern shore, that's where Herod's palace of Machairus was located, and he would have taken John the Baptist there and imprisoned him. And remember, John was thrown into Herod's prison because he publicly condemned Herod Antipas's 
marriage to his brother's wife. It was all very much Peyton Place in the first century. And again, you guys are way too young to even remember Peyton Place. But think, think real housewives of New Jersey only 2,000 years ago. Where there's all kinds of drama. And Herodias is wicked even by Roman standards. And you'll remember that John takes a public stand against sin. He condemns it. He refuses to condone it. And by the way, it's always dangerous to take a public stand against public immorality. John's preaching and public stand is going to cost him imprisonment. And even death. You'll remember when Herodias' daughter dances, Herod Antipas asks the question, well, what do you want from me? And Herodias, of course, says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Because she's thinking that if I can make the voice stop, if I can make the voice exposing my my wickedness and my guilt, then guess what? Maybe my wickedness and my guilt will go away. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Just making the people stop talking doesn't make it go away. It was John Knox who stood toe-to-toe with the wickedness of his day. And when he was faced with the wicked and corrupt Queen Mary, Knox was rebuked for resisting her authority. And Knox's response became legendary. If princes exceed their bounds, madam, they may be resisted and deposed. Herod and Herodias again are trying to make John the Baptist's ministry go away. But with the closing of one ministry will begin the beginning of a new ministry. And by the way, that seems to be the way that it often works. There is a lifespan, a beginning, a middle, and an end to service. But make no mistake about it, when my service ends, when your service ends, there's going to be a new voice and a new challenge to point people in the same direction. Some leaders in this world may be able to imprison ministry leaders in China or North Korea or even our own Saeed Abedini in Iran or in the Sudan or other parts of the world where they're hostile to Christ and hostile to Christianity, but God will continue to raise up men and women with a purpose World leaders may think that they exercise enormous power and you might be facing just such a thing. Your boss or your teacher or some local politician may gloat over their ability to make life miserable for Christians or Christianity, but make no mistake about it, God will have the final say. People's lights will shine. Jesus must go to the Galilee, but he's going to go to the right place at the right time to fulfill God's purposes. And you may not understand it right now, but Jesus is always in the right place at the right time. You might be thinking, where are you and why aren't you here? But Jesus will be at exactly the right place at the right time. And it says he departed to the Galilee. And remember, again, it's the beautiful region north of Jerusalem. And it was heavily populated. And when Josephus wrote about the Galileans, he said that they were fond of innovations. And by nature disposed to change. And they delighted in seditions. In other words, Galilee was the fighting area. This is where the fighting people came from. In Europe, they have a European Union, and the European Union like to think of themselves as Europeans, but there's one nation in Europe that thinks of themselves as themselves first. It's Spain. We are Spaniards first. We have the same thing here in the United States of America. In these United States, you go to Texas, and you're Texas first, and you're an American second. The Galileans were... Galileans first. 
Jesus knew what the local authorities could do or would do. But there's a reason why he goes to this place at this time and picks those people. And he understands something even about John the Baptist's ministry. There were two kinds of people who heard, remember, John the Baptist's ministry. Those who heard it gladly and received it. Those who heard it sadly and rejected it. And Jesus couldn't help but noticing that when John the Baptist's message was rejected by some, it winds up in his incarceration and eventual death. And so, by the way, it shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that when you speak words of hope and you speak words of light and you speak words of truth, there are going to be people who accept the message and some who reject the message. It says in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. Jesus chooses a beautiful beach town as his headquarters. And Capernaum means Kephar, which is an, which is an Aramaic word which means village, and Nahum, which means comfort, it means, or compassion. It can mean the village of compassion. Jesus will break ties with his family and friends in Nazareth in order to spend time and focus on Capernaum. And again, this is the place where Matthew, the writer of this gospel, has also set up his tax franchise. Now, imagine you are starting a ministry and you go to a particular city and you go, if I'm going to have an effective ministry, I wonder who I should enlist to join forces with me in the ministry that God has provided for me. Let's take the person who's the most hated person in all of the village of Capernaum. And he is going to eventually call Matthew who's going to write this gospel. You know, when Mary and I were trying to figure out where we would go, and where we would plant a church. We went to Austin, Texas, and we went to Houston, Texas, and we went to Florida because I'm thinking I would love to be by a beach because in Southern California, guess what? Huntington Beach already had Calvary chapels and San Diego already had Calvary chapels and all of the, many of the beach towns had Calvary chapels in Long Beach and in, in South Bay. And I thought, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go near water. And then the Lord gave me a passage of scripture to think about and meditate on. It was found in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 where it says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I thought, hmm, the geography doesn't seem to matter all that much to the Lord. Why, I could go to Cleveland. Well, no one would go to Cleveland apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and the calling of God. <laughs> but when I reread the passage, I discovered something. Jesus said, I will be with you wherever you go. And it wasn't so much the geography that seemed to matter as it was the journey that my wife and I were going to take together as we faced some obstacles and some difficulties. When we decided to plant a church, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And she received treatment. And it was a difficult time, and it was a challenging time. It was a time of humility, and it was also a time of complete dependence upon the Lord. And it was the exact time of test and preparation that we needed to go in exactly the direction that God was going to call us. Because the Lord wasn't calling us to Houston or to Austin or to Florida or anywhere by a sea. The Lord was calling us here. And when the Lord brought us here, I needed a job. But getting a job was easy compared to cancer. Cancer's hard. Getting employment isn't really that difficult. And then I started a Bible study and people started to come. But starting a Bible study is easy compared to cancer. 
And then we needed a place to meet, but finding a place to meet was easy compared to cancer. And you see, sometimes there's going to be difficulties and there's going to be challenges and there's going to be setbacks that are going to be easy. Jesus is going to have to leave one particular place and go to another particular place, but the believer has every reason to trust God's leading and guidance because we are believers, because Jesus has become a part of our life. We are led and guided and directed by God's Holy Spirit, and we can trust that God will lead us to the right place at the right time in order to accomplish the right ministry in the right chapter of our life. In Psalm 25, 9, it says, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. In Psalm 48, 14, it says, for this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. In Isaiah 48, 17, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I'm the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. You mean the Bible says that I can actually expect the leading of God and the guidance by his Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes! It's okay for you to say, Lord, 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 where do you want me and what do you want for me? We serve the Lord and we seek his purpose for our life. And within every generation, God will raise up a particular witness and then he'll raise up another particular witness. And remember what I've already told you about John the Baptist. He is God's witness. And remember what you need in order to be a good witness. You have to have a knowledge of the facts. You have to have a reputation for honesty. But you also have to have a willingness to tell the truth and tell it over and over again. And the witness of John the Baptist is going to pass And the witness and the testimony of God in Christ is going to ascend. And John the Baptist's ministry is going to be fulfilled because he says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And in verse 14 it says, That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus makes a deliberate decision concerning his ministry, concerning the ministry location. Based on prophecy. And some of you might be thinking, well, why does he do that? And by the way, there are going to be two broad readers of this text. The skeptic and the critic and the believer. The skeptic and the critic will say, well, Jesus combed the Old Testament to try and make sure that somehow he manipulates the text and the revelation of the Old Testament to fit his own ministry, but the believer understands that's not what's happening at all. The believer understands that Jesus knows the passages and lives in those passages, and he also was right when he said, you read the scriptures, for in them that you think that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. Jesus understands That God has orchestrated from the very beginning the unfolding of this ministry and the unfolding of his life. And the truth is, even though some of you doubt it and some of you question it and some of you wonder whether or not it is true, God has orchestrated your beginning and your life, and your circumstances, and the family that you're in, and the generation that you're living in, and the gifts and callings that he's placed on your life, and the specific cluster of skills have been entrusted to you in order to accomplish exactly what God has to plan for you. Jesus doesn't attempt to fulfill the scriptures to add credibility to an already incredible ministry, but rather to remind the reader that the ministry of Jesus is predicted in scripture, is a part of God's plan, and is a part of God's purposes for your life. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it predicts 
the Gentiles, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, the land by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. If you look at the eastern portion and you'll see the Tetrarchy of Philip and you go south to what's called the Decapolis, this is the area that was for the most part largely occupied by Gentiles. Why is this important to to the text? Because Matthew is already at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is going to remind the Jews, guess what? God has a plan for the Gentiles as well. Guess what? Jesus is going to show up and speak. These people who are ignorant of God's revelation are going to see a great light and that light is Jesus. We pay attention to scripture Jesus said in John 15, 3, now you are clean through the word which I've spoken to you. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16, Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so when he quotes the passage from Isaiah and the Galilee of the Gentiles, this is significant because Jesus is going to be reaching out to a cross stream of people in order for you to understand it you have to understand that there's a famous trade uh, place if you look where the little ocean you you see the dead sea on on the south and you see the uh, the sea of galilee to the north well that route there was a route called the way of the sea and galilee was on the way to everywhere to go north to Syria, to go south to Egypt, to go east to what's now Iran and Iraq, or at that time, Babylon. The region was originally given by God to the tribes of Azure and Zebulon and Naphtali. They were sent in to possess the land, and Zebulon and Naphtali failed to expel the Canaanites from their territories, and they entered into mixed marriages, and pagan practices made Galilee a Gentile haunt, and in the 8th century BC, the Assyrians under the pagan king took a large portion of the Israeli population, deported them, non-Jewish people came in and occupied the region, and they were distant from the revelation of God and disconnected from the word of God just like the world in which you live. A world that used to understand the Bible and a world that used to read the Bible and a world that used to believe the Bible. But because that particular region had lost its connection to the Bible and the word of God and the revelation of God, they sat in darkness. No wonder the religious Jews in Jerusalem are amazed that Jesus is going to go to this place and he's going to pick those people because the Galileans had a reputation of being uncouth and despised. It wasn't the proud, educated, sophisticated, rabbinical schools that, that Jesus will set up his, his headquarters. He's going to a, to a place where people who are hurt and people who are despised and people who are rejected are going to become the first mission field for Jesus. I want you to think about it. The neediest people are often the most likely to recognize their need. And Jesus goes to them first. And in verse 16, look what it says. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Before we talk about Isaiah's prediction and this prophecy as it's recorded in verse 16, let's ask a quick question. What is the kingdom mission? What is the purpose or task that's been assigned to Jesus? It's found in the very first two words. The people. The people. The people. The focus is going to be on 
the people. Jesus' focus is on the people. It isn't a philosophical construct. It isn't even a theological set of instructions. We're given the kingdom mission. Jesus is the light. Remember in John 1 verses 4 and 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. Again, Jesus's mission includes ministry to people in need, Jesus said of himself in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the Old Testament, walking in the darkness was used as a, as a euphemism or a metaphor. It was often used as a figure of speech to describe walking in righteousness before God and obedience to the revelation of the word of God. And so that image of light and darkness radiates throughout the passages in the Bible. The opening sentence in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit said, let there be... You know it, the opening sentence. When we first hear the voice of God, we discover in the Bible, the Bible says that God is light, and in him is no darkness. And so darkness becomes a metaphor, not just simply for ignorance, not just simply for a lack of knowledge, not just simply for an absence of moral propriety. It's all of those things and more. And so Jesus comes to save sinners. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 5, 31, Jesus answers and says, They that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save save that which is lost. Jesus will take people in darkness, in distress, in duress, and offer them light and wholeness and wellness. And this becomes a picture for you. Because that's the world that you're living in. A world of darkness and a world of distress and a world of duress. And for some of you, for some of you, for some of you, the only person that they're going to see is you. You're the one. And again, this isn't something that you just learn or, or you go to school or, or you get a, a particular skill set or, or a compilation of information. Part of the point of being a Christian is the presence of God in your life and the presence of Jesus. And the Bible says that once Jesus comes into your life, and into your heart, a light goes on. And when that light goes on, you shine. And when you show up, you make people uncomfortable. Hey, excuse me, excuse me. I, I, I need to put on my cultural, philosophical, and theological shades because it's just a little too bright in this place. And that's what happens when you show up. And so it's really, really important. Because people in darkness and people in duress and people in distress will invite you into the darkness. But if you only simply do what God has called you to do, shine. You're going to make people uncomfortable. So in at least one sense, his mission is our mission. Jesus shows up for the people. And we show up for the people. And we do what Jesus did. 
We give them love and we give them hope and we give them light and we give them Jesus because light is present and we walk away from the darkness. The prophet points out that the people, don't miss this, the people sat in darkness. And do you know why they sat in darkness? Because you sit in the place of comfort and you sit in the place of ease. And the people in the Galilee, on the other side of the Galilee, were sitting in darkness. They were comfortable with their darkness. And that's the world in which you live. People who are comfortable in their darkness. And so when you open up your Bible, it's like a gigantic flashlight. It is a floodlight. And when you speak the words of hope, It shines. And when you speak the words of grace, it shines. People are comfortable with darkness. Jesus said in John chapter 3 verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates him who does the truth and comes to the light that his deeds may be made known, that they are wrought in God. And so Jesus shows up. And people sit in the region. Look what it says, the region of the shadow of death. The region means the territory, the country, the area. And why does he call it the region or the territory or the country of death? Because guess what? It is in the shadow of death because when you are in darkness and you are in death, you are absent the life. And remember what the New Testament teaches, that Jesus saves you to bring you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Douglas, come... Copeland, who is an artist and an author, Douglas Copeland um, coined terms like McJob and Generation X. He's an author and an artist uh, from Canada. He wrote a, a book called Player One, What It Is to Become of Us, or What Is to Become of Us. He's a postmodern kind of skeptic. He writes, you keep waiting for the moral of your life to become obvious, but it never does. Work, 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 no moral, no plot, no eureka, just production schedules and days. You might as well be living inside a photocopier. Your lives are all they're ever going to be, unquote. And the Bible says no, and Jesus says no, Jesus says, guess what? The Lord loves you. God is going to bring light into the world. He's going to send his only begotten son. There there is such a thing as hope. There is such a thing as forgiveness. You can believe in Jesus. You can experience it. And something inside of you knows that it's true. The moment that you begin to look around and you begin to ask the question, does my life matter? Does your life matter? And the moment, the moment, the moment that you come to the realization that your life matters and that it has a purpose and that you were meant to glorify God and you were meant to have a real relationship with God, there is a moral to the story. There is a plot. There is a discovery. You don't live inside of a photocopier. You have light. And you have the ability to shine that light. And you have purpose. And you have hope. And so in verse 17, we go from the kingdom mission to the kingdom message. Look what it says. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I know what you're thinking. Well, Gino, if your preaching was that short, I think I could maybe suffer through it. Jesus has one line. And that line is so packed with information. You might be tempted to just overlook the first three words. 
from that time. What time? He transfers his ministry headquarters. What time? He begins with a purpose and power, his public ministry, in order to fulfill prophecy. What time? The phrase was meant to convey urgency and persistence and perseverance. The phrase, by the way, will be used one more time in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, if you just turn there real quick, it's only just a few pages over. You go past chapter 7 and chapter 10 and chapter 12, and look, all of a sudden you're there in chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 21, it says, from that time. Jesus began to show his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he has to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This will mark the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In chapter 16, it will mark the end of his ministry when he is going to head towards the area of incarceration and death and resurrection. And it's an important clue about Jesus and his mission and his message. But you'll notice something very familiar about his message. It's the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance will be the reoccurring theme in the preaching of Jesus and also be included in the closing admonition to his own disciples at the close of the ministry of Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 45, and then in 46 it says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. John the Baptist, a witness. Knowledge of the facts, reputation for honesty, a willing to tell the truth. Jesus, a witness of God. Knowledge of the facts, reputation for honesty, willingness to tell the truth. And Jesus calls you. He speaks to you about your life and about the circumstances. And he wants you to understand the facts and he wants you to cultivate a reputation for honesty and then a willingness to speak. And by the way, the Greek word translated preach is kerudzo. I've already told you what preach means. Remember, teaching is imparting information. Preaching is urging you to not only hear the information, but to embrace it and walk in it. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, said, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. When he preached, he would not only urge people to believe the gospel, he would beg them, he would weep and cry over them and say, won't you turn from darkness? What is it about darkness that you enjoy so much? Why won't you come into the light? Why won't you allow your heart to be cleansed? Why won't you walk with Jesus? And remember what repentance always involves. It's not just simply a turning from sin, it's a turning to the Lord. Repentance always involves at least those two things, turning from sin and then turning to the Lord. But there's also three things that happen. There's a change of mind. When you turn from your sin, the idea is that you're going to change your mind about sin. There is a deep desire to do good instead of evil. Remember what the Bible says, stop lying and start telling the truth. Remember what it says, stop stealing and start working. If you're going to change your mind about sin, there's also a change of heart. 
Instead of loving sin, we set our affections on the things that are godly and spiritual and edifying. The psalmist wrote, oh, how I love your law. And again, this isn't a slavish observance to the rules, but rather a deep desire on the part of the believer to please the Lord. Imagine having a conversation with with God where you say, what do you want me to do? Versus, how can I please you? How can I make you happy? And because there's a change of mind and because there's a change of heart, there's also a change of life. The change of life is the evidence that our repentance is real and true. If you've ever had a conversation with someone and you've asked them, are you going in a different direction? Have you changed your mind? Has your heart changed in this circumstance? The evidence, of course, is that you're going in a different direction. Someone said, tis not enough to say, I'm sorry and repent, and then go on from day to day, just as we always went. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. And the Lord preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's near. Some suggest that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same. Jesus spoke in the Aramaic language. And when he was preaching this message, he would have preached, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The idea being this is the place where God rules. This is the place where God reigns. This is the place where God is in authority. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus teach us to pray. He said when you pray pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. As it is in heaven there is a place where God's rule and God's will and God's desires are accomplished and the reality of God isn't just simply about a visible kingdom on the earth the kingdom of God does and have a future reality and it also has a present reality and the most amazing thing is that the values of the kingdom of heaven often run counter to the values of this world or even our own expectations in Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 Jesus will say to his own disciples you have been permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven but others have not Who will understand the values of the kingdom of heaven and who won't? The people who will understand the values of heaven will come to expect what God expects. So, what part of his mission is your mission? What if I said to you that whatever your mission is, whatever your purpose is, whatever your pure and holy passion is, whatever your magnificent obsession is, that if it doesn't include people who are in darkness and duress and distress, I would invite you to reconsider because that's the mission of Jesus. It's to bring light. It's to bring hope. It's to bring love. It's to bring a message that a kingdom is coming. Part of the question that you should ask of the text is, well, when is it going to be revealed? Who has citizenship in this place? How do I get the citizenship in this place? Well, you sneak across the border. And when you get there, God in heaven is just going to grant you amnesty. No, that's not how it works. 
It's not an earthly kingdom. We can sneak across each other's borders. But you can't sneak into heaven. Citizenship comes when the person trusts Jesus as the Savior. Citizenship comes when there's a declaration of love and loyalty to this king in this kingdom. But we're going to find out more about this in the next section. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our heart. Lord, we pray that that question, what is my mission? What is my message? What is my pure and holy passion? What is my magnificent obsession? Lord, we know that it's your desire for us to get closer to you to care about what you care about. And Lord, we know in moments of honesty that that's people and their circumstances. And Lord, we know that it's a message of turning from sin and turning to you because there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a reason. And there is going to come a time, there is going to come a time when every nook and every cranny of all of this universe is going to submit to the sovereignty of God that love and justice will in fact be united in a not too distant place in a not too distant future and so Lord we pray that you would stir our hearts and Lord we pray that we would cry out to you and call out to you and say Lord what is my purpose fully, fully, fully expecting that you're going to guide us into that purpose and then equip us in that purpose so that you would be glorified. And so, Lord, again, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.